Welcome, listeners, to Connect the Dots. I'm Allison Rose Levy, and I'm here with you every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. Each week on Connect the Dots, we connect the dots between you, your well-being, the well-being of your community, your region, our country, and the whole planet Earth. Um, you know, we kind of talk all the way from personal health <clears throat> to the global environment, to different experts, advocates, journalists, authors, doctors, scientists, economists, filmmakers, uh, organizers, poets, uh, and all different kinds of people about all of these different aspects of our interconnected world. Uh, Connected Dots has been on Progressive Radio for 11 years at this point, um, and basically has been shaped around my own reporting. Uh, as an advocate and journalist covering health, food, and the environment, as well as policy and the media, because, of course, what we think, what we believe, and what we understand plays an incredibly important role in how we act and intervene in some of the kind of cascading crises that are afflicting our world currently. Um, So I'm delighted to have on the show this week uh, a returning journalist, that we have talked to before because his focus and topic uh, has continued to gain importance. Uh, we'll be speaking today with Bronco Marchatich. He's a Jacobin staff writer and the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. Um, and so from when we you know, first began talking, he was uh, running in the primary. Uh, he wasn't doing so well. And then he, you know, as everyone knows, this is very old news to anyone who pays any attention, he emerged as uh, the leading, I don't even want to say winner or choice of somebody out of the primary, as you could say, Um, and, you know, has now been fully nominated just this past week as a Democratic Party candidate. Um, So Bronco has made, you know, a study of him, uh, an in-depth study of him over several years, and is one of the most kind of knowledgeable people to whom we could be talking. So, you know, it's a moment when um, there are, like, reasons for hope that we might be able to unseat this, you know, this dangerous president that we have, and at the same time, there are concerns and cautions. And so we'll be discussing some of that uh, on today's show. Uh, welcome to Connect the Dots once again, Bronco March to Teach. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be back. So, um, you know, in watching the recent Democratic Party convention um, and the, you know, the kind of anointing and the rising uh, to the, you know, the to lead the foray of, you know, a variety of different Democratic Party party players. Um, Was this a moment (laughs) that surprised you, that you had seen coming, or that, you know, you really kind of thought, you know, it was a bit of a crapshoot that anything like this would ever happen? I mean, when when it actually all began and it was, you know, going forward, of course you'd had time to get used to it, but what was your gut-level feeling about this, having studied and written about and reported on this man for so long? Uh, Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise to see Biden uh, become the nominee. I mean, just because of how badly he did in the the primaries, the early primaries. Um, I mean, I think it's safe to say that all of this is really pretty unprecedented. No no candidate has ever uh, 
done that badly in the first two primaries uh, and then gone on to become the nominee. And by the same token, no candidate has won the popular vote in the first three primaries as Sanders did and then went on to um, to lose the candidacy uh, or the nomination. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is because of uh, the things that were working behind the scenes, the same kind of things that are happening now to kind of continue to uh, forestall any progressive change within the Democratic Party. Um, you know, that, that effort did not end when Biden became the nominee. It's, it's continued up till now, and I'm sure we'll... We'll cover that. But yeah, it's, it's enormously, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a wild ride, let's put it that way. Uh, not one that I'm particularly pleased about, given um, everything that is facing the world uh, right now. But, um, you know, just, just for, as one example, you know, the, the book kind of came out just before Biden uh, South Carolina, the day before, in fact. And, and uh, that was the official book launch, and it was not a turnout. Because I think people were just like, oh, this got done. You know, what's the point? And then after that, he just roared back. Almost as if the release of the book was the reason for his comeback, which I hope to God is not, is not true. Um, but it's it's been a real rock tester. Hmm. Yes, it really has. And also, I recall, you know, earlier in the year, um, and, you know, it's not like these concerns have evaporated. Um, it's more that we haven't seen that much of Joe Biden, in, you know, in person or in speeches or anything. When he was actively on the campaign trail, uh, for, you know, from approximately, you know, May or June of 2019 all the way, you know, through the primary season, which, you know, <laughs> ended in March uh, in terms of, you know, in-person voting and all of that, although there has been mail-in voting since then. Um, you know, he was displaying behaviors and everything um, that were causing some concern and criticism. You know, there are all kinds of stories and spins about what those might be about. And even at this juncture, it isn't even considered, like, a good idea, given the urgency of, um, you know, unseating Trump, who is, you know, kind of a functioning, uh, you know, to really just dis- to, to, to play kind of play foolish and extremely dangerous games uh, with people's lives. So one hesitates even to ask. But, you know, there was this earlier uh, Biden whom we saw, you know, earlier in the primary who, you know, had some behavioral oddities and and other things. And now he hasn't really been in the public eye very much, um, apart from his recent appearance and speech at the, uh, convention. So as someone who's looked at him for a long time, I'm wondering, you know, what what you think is going on with him and how you, you know, how, how you interpret his performance, um, which, you know, this past week. I mean, I think it's clear that the, uh, the Democrats and, and Biden have been saved by the the crisis by, by the pandemic. Uh, you know, Biden's record being what it is, uh, and being that, you know, he really is a diminished figure uh, having come back in 2020. You know, uh, some people say that this is not a, a polite thing to say, but of course, Democratic 
uh, candidates brought up in the primary, and, and as the journalists, uh, you know, it was very obvious, you know, go back and watch clips of Biden from 2015 and earlier, he's, he's not really the same. Um, and for that, you know, in, in a normal year, the way the economy was going in the U.S. as well before this happened, uh, Biden was, I think, headed to, for almost certain defeat if, um, if COVID hadn't changed everything. Um, now, the, the lucky thing for uh, Biden and, and Democrats is that this gave them an excuse to um, not have Biden in public, uh, to do as few events as possible, to, to not do press conferences, to avoid uh, any sort of serial interviews. Uh, famously, he um, uh, uh, turned down a Fox News interview with, uh, I've forgotten his name now, but uh, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, Foxy's interview is, is probably more down the line than anyone at that channel. Um, his, his name will come back to me at some point. But, um, uh, yeah, it's given them a, a, a good excuse to avoid doing it. And, and it's let them actually say, well, this is actually a smart strategy. Because the problem was that, as we've seen over the far, past few months, Whenever Biden does get into public, when he does interviews, he tends to um, make some sort of headline or some sort of viral moment. He either, you know, will mix something up, he'll forget what he's saying, he'll kind of speak incoherently, or he'll say something offensive, as as we saw when he, um, you know, told Charlemagne the God that you're not black if you are considering going for Trump and, and that kind of thing. Um, so this has allowed them to kind of limit his exposure and to keep people, as long as Trump is kind of screwing up the pandemic response, as long as the country is going, uh, going to hell, uh, as it has been for the last few months, the idea is that people will just sort of fondly remember the Joe Biden of, of the Obama years. Um, nothing that they see will, will change their perception of him, and they will just automatically vote for him as a vote against Trump. And how's it working? You know, let's be clear. Biden uh, is uh, leading. He's, he's got a massive lead nationally and uh, in some polls in, in battleground states. Other polls, not so much. But, you know, he, he is leading. Um, however, uh, and, you know, this is what I talked about in that piece that, that uh, you mentioned. There are some warning signs that are uh, creeping up, not just over this, uh, this last weekend, but um, uh, even before then, even before the convention, that this support that Biden has, even though everyone assumes that no one is going to vote for Trump because of how badly the whole thing has been handled, there's signs that Biden's support is a lot softer. Um, then, then the Democratic Party is just very overconfidently kind of already measuring the, the drapes of the House uh, may think. So, uh, you know, it may be a bumpy few months ahead. Mm-hmm. What are the signs uh, in terms of polling, in terms of, like, what are we seeing uh, that doesn't look so good at the present moment or is different from where you would expect to find the campaign and the uh, positions of the candidates for the electorate? Well, Biden uh, came into the candidacy with uh, the lowest, and there was an ABC poll that had been done for, for you know, 20 or 30 years, uh, the lowest enthusiasm of any Democrat candidate in the, you know, the decades that the poll had been taken. And that hasn't really changed. Um, if you mm-hmm. look at, mo- at virtually every poll, um, it's very easy to find 
the vast majority of uh, Democratic voters, or at least Biden voters, are saying that they're voting for Biden not because they want to vote for Biden or for anything, but purely to vote against Trump. It's completely the opposite with Trump. Trump voters, they are voting for Trump. So this election is all about Trump. It's not about Biden. It's not about proposing any sort of positive alternative to Trumpism. It's just about do you like what Trump is doing or do you not? Now, uh, again, the better that COVID will mean that um, people will just automatically pull the lever for for Biden. But um, that may not be true. Uh, we, We saw just before... Um, the convention. Uh, there were several polls that came out, three three pretty big ones. There was a Wall Street Journal poll, uh, uh, there was a Washington Post poll, and uh, there was another one which I, I, I'm forgetting now. Um, it, was a, it was a CNN poll. It was a CNN poll. All three of these polls showed that over the uh, last month at least, so when the economy had cratered, when uh, kids were, were stuck at home or being uh, let back into school uh, way too early and being affected, and the numbers of thousands, as millions of people were infected with the virus, tens of thousands were di- had died. You know, Trump had uh, sent forces into to, to Portland that had inflamed that crisis. Um, all of this stuff, all of this chaos and horror. During that time, Biden actually dipped in the polls, um, which is what, the opposite of what you would expect uh, when a president is running the country into the ground this way. Uh, beyond that, and, and this is not just those three polls, his, his polling average and the real clear, clear poll is polling average that fell as well. If you look at battleground what states, what do you think that? Oh, what do you think that? I mean, I, why? I, we can only make guesses, you know. Uh, it may well be that for a lot of people, particularly working-class people, uh, this crisis, while horrific, is just one more calamity, one more piece of horror and, and struggle in their lives. Uh, and it does not feel exceptional, even though it may well feel exceptional for a lot of people who are perhaps uh, you know, more middle class, were more secure at the very least before the crisis. Another one maybe that, that Trump actually restarted his briefing, you know, after spending months just uh, betting on pretending that the virus just wasn't happening, that everything was fine and, and you know, we can just ignore it and open the economy. He finally realized, or his advisors realized, that this is not going to help him win, that he had to at least pretend to care about the virus. And so he started, he restarted his daily briefings. Um, may, perhaps that is why Trump being more visible, uh, more being out there, while well, Biden has just really not done barely, barely any media appearances and you barely hear from him. That may well be. And if you the real weakness in choosing a candidate like Biden, who basically is physically unable to campaign, or, or at the very least is someone that they are worried about, uh, letting out into public to campaign because they they, they worry that he'll damage himself. Um, you know, the the other thing is that if you look at Hillary Clinton in 2016, in those battleground states that she lost, so Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, those crucial states that uh, went to Trump in 2016 and, and cost of the election, uh, uh, by polling average, Biden is actually doing worse than she was at this point in 2016, um, which is, which, when you consider everything that's going on, the 
regular voter suppression that the GOP engages in, which is going to have an effect, but also the voter suppression that's happening through the decimation of the Postal Service and just the general um, crisis, uh, you know, the effects of it, the, the evictions, that's going to possibly uh, hurt voter participation and registration, um, as well as a whole host of other things. Uh, you know, that, that is a worrying sign. And, and the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, a lot of people, when I pointed this, they said, well, you know, Biden hasn't had the convention yet. He'll get the convention bounced. Clinton at that point was still still playing a, a big lead that she got once the convention in July had happened. Well, that is true. But I have polling after the convention, this convention that, um, that, that had been explicitly pitched at independents, at moderates, at conservatives, Republicans. Uh, the idea was we're not going to play to our base. We're going to we're going to try and get this very tiny, small number of of the Trump Republicans to come over to the Democratic side. That was what the convention was about. There was a CBS poll that shows from July uh, to just after the convention, uh, Biden not only did not get a polling bounce, unless you count one point uh, as, a, as a polling bounce. But he actually lost ground with Republicans and independents, um, which is the exact opposite of what you would have wanted from not just a convention, but a particularly a convention that was almost entirely catered to winning those voters. So all of that, to me, is a very, very worrying sign that uh, you know, the, the, the party, if this is a close election, if this is an election that comes down to whose base is most enthusiastic to come out, that the Democrats may be shooting themselves in the foot. And, of course, you know, it's not going to be them that face the consequences. It'll be, you know, ordinary working people that, that do. So, uh, you know, those are, those are things that uh, are pretty worrying. That, that is very worrying. I mean, it's kind of shocking because, you know, the sort of most vibrant moment uh, should be following the convention, especially given that, you know, many people – I was not particularly among them, but many people felt very enthusiastic to, you know, have these, this rallying fourth call from these well-known Democratic Party figures, et cetera. I mean, this should be, you know, the most upbeat surge moment. And also, it's, you know, it's doubly concerning then is here the party is pursuing the same strategy of, like, enviously going after uh, Republicans you know, is this, uh, you know, the, the wind will depend upon them. Um, and that's the same thing they did in 2016. It was a failed strategy. And, and uh, you know, especially with the dynamics that you're discussing, which is that, you know, as you said, that Trump supporters really like him, you know. So you're going to try to pick off some of that group. And, of course, there has been some shift in that, given his handling of COVID, you know, so there's, you know, uh, so that could potentially be a strategy. But if the numbers aren't really revealing that it is, then the whole thing, you know, there's a lot of Trump's base that kind of accepts his handling of this because they are scientifically illiterate, uh, poorly informed. You know, they're going to have to learn uh, about the mishandling of COVID and the wrong-headed approach taken, you know, through personal death and loss, apparently. And, you know, nothing... They, they can't take an advanced warning on it for some, you know, I don't want to say every Republican feels that way. Um, you know, so this whole strategy of we must peel off Republicans, uh, which failed before, um, and that, you know, isn't showing up as, have, as being that productive now, it's like, it's as if, puzzlingly, there's a case of Republican envy, 
the fact that they've been a kind of brutal and domineering force in American life, you know, and that they have a lot of money behind them makes people envy them, want to enlist them, and want to imitate them. And that just seems <laughs> like you're playing away from your strength toward, the, you know, their strengths. But their strength is appealing, you know, is drawing people to vote for Trump, not for, our, you know, not for the Democrats. I mean, it's, it, you know, it is worrying. And right now should be when there's like a big bounce, you know. So, yeah, I mean... I would possibly be even even more uh, cynical than that. I mean, I, I think that for the party, I mean, we, we saw how desperate, to be honest, the fact that even went for Joe Biden, Biden was not the choice of, of really anyone. <laughs> uh, and even in the party, uh, there, there's a, a great piece uh, in Politico by uh, Ryan Lizza um, that came out maybe a week or two ago um, that shows you how the party, you know, the actual establishment of the party really uh, considers Biden, what they think of him. And, you know, even Obama himself uh, said about Biden, you know, I'm not sure if, I, I, won't, I won't swear, but what he said was, uh, never underestimate Joe's ability to screw things up. Um, he used a, a slightly slightly stronger language than, than I did there. Um, and, you know, there's, there's just quotes from anonymous people, but also things taken out of the, the Clinton uh, emails, like the 2016, that shows that the party does not really have a lot of regard for Biden. And I think that was clear. Um, uh, even though, the, despite the push he got on MSNBC, um, you know, the party, I think, would have wanted somebody more like Kamala Harris. Of course, that's why she's, she's now the running mate. Or someone like Pete Buttigieg, or even someone like Amy Klobuchar. Uh, they had to settle for Biden because they, he was the only viable person to stop Sanders. He was the only, only person, only candidate that had significant uh, black support. Um, Buttigieg and, and Klobuchar were, had, had basically zero. Uh, and so they could not compete against Sanders, and so they dropped out to help him. And so, you know, the fact that they would throw their chips in with someone that they, who they, you know, privately, not just believe that he's not a particularly uh, great leader, or uh, you know, but also that someone who could screw up a campaign and is, is not really the, the best person for the job, shows you how willing they were to risk, you know, again, other people's lives, other people's suffering. Um, for the benefit of, of preventing the party from turning left. And I think that's what, what it comes down to. Um, you know, I, I, another thing I'll say is that this situation where more people are voting for uh, or against the Republican than they are voting for the Democrat uh, has only happened once, uh, one other time in the last, you know, 16 or so years. Uh, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, they, they, they have a comparison of this polling. It was back in 2004. The idea was, here's a divisive, polarizing, extremist president, George W. Bush. Of course, now somehow the media and liberal favorite. I don't know how that happened. But, uh, you know, you have yeah. this polarizing president, and we won't, we won't go with the person we want. We won't, won't go with the anti-war candidate. We'll go with the centrist candidate who maybe will appeal to Bush's voters and win them over. And that you know, polling showed people... Uh, who were voting for Kerry in 2004 were not voting for Kerry. They were voting for Bush overwhelmingly. And, of course, Kerry lost. And what happened in that, that election was Bush and the Republicans drove up their own turnout. They drove out their base. Uh, and that's how they won, whereas the Democrats couldn't muster it because they had a very uninspiring candidate. Um, and the only other time that it's come close to, to those kinds of numbers where people were, were uh, voted more against Democratic candidates than for 
that was in 2016. Uh, you know, then people were actually people, more people voted, uh, were voting for Clinton, um, but it was close. It, it, she, you know, it wasn't quite as Obama. For Obama, people were inspired and excited, and it was, it was through the roof. Um, you know, and, and the last thing I'll say about that in connection, uh, I think the, the paradox here was really on display on the first night of the Democratic Convention, where on the one hand, at the beginning of the convention, you had John Kasich, uh, who is a, you know, despite his nice guy persona, is uh, very much an extreme hard-right Republican who went after abortion rights, who went after unions. Uh, John Kasich comes out and he tells people, don't worry, moderates and conservatives, Biden is not going to turn left. All this stuff he's been saying in the press about, you know, becoming FDR and all this stuff, that's not going to happen. That, is, that was the signal that he was sending, you know. Um, then the convention ends with Michelle Obama really admonishing voters, and these voters are particularly the young progressive voters who are least excited about Biden and, and you know, who are even toying with the idea of just abstaining from the election as a whole to sort of teach the party a lesson. Um, and to have it, you know, actually care about its votes. Um, and she tells them, you know, you, you've got to be prepared to go out and, and stand in line. Get your good shoes on, pack a lunch, pack a dinner, maybe pack a breakfast. You might be there all night. Um, uh, you, have to, you have to have the same enthusiasm that you had in 2008 and 2012 to vote for my husband to now vote for Joe Biden. Um, now, the problem is that if you're telling these voters, well, we're not going to do anything that you want if he wins, but you better feel the same excitement and enthusiasm, that's not necessarily going to actually get people out to vote. Obama, you know, maybe disingenuously, but nonetheless did actually uh, make promises to people that were inspiring and, and promised them a better life. Biden is not. And so, um, you know, again, all of it is just, it's, it's a big flashing bright red warning sign to me. Um, and and one, one other thing, the, the problem with alienating the, this section of voters is that in 2016, Clinton lost, uh, there was a five-point drop in youth voters voting for the Democrats. And, and that was one of the things that made a difference and, and signed Clinton that year. Uh, so it's a very dangerous game that they are playing. Well, what do you think was the parallel with Clinton? I kind of didn't get that so clearly. What was it that you did that's like this thing of coercing people and, and how to vote rather than offering them inducements that would want, make them want to vote? Um, she, you know, I'm trying to like get, get a little clearer about what you mean there. Doctor, do you mind? With, yeah, it was just uh, the, the line was kind of a little underwater there. Hello? Hello? Yeah. Yeah, hi. Oh, can you hear me? Um, yeah. I, was just, yeah I, didn't, I didn't, uh, sorry, I didn't get that. Yeah, oh, you couldn't hear it. Yeah, I was just wondering how Michelle, because I, I kind of, somehow maybe it was just I, I didn't get it clearly, maybe, every, you know, all the listeners have gotten it clearly, but I was trying to understand how Michelle Obama's exhortation to young people saying, you know, Get out and do this, and no matter how you feel, even if you're, you know, not feeling enthusiastic or whatever, you know, it's your obligation to get out and do this. How does that parallel what Clinton was doing? You know, this kind of grit your teeth and do this, uh, but we're not, in, you know, we're not offering anything that would motivate you to do it. We're kind of using a trick to tell you you better do it. Um, you know, how does that parallel 
or do what Clinton did in 2015. It's the exact same thing. I mean, I think this is what is so uh, really breathtakingly cynical about this whole thing, and and so um, I think I think uh, it, it's going to make a lot of people angry if they if they lose because what they've done is they have decided to run the exact same campaign as the one that lost in 2016 with a candidate who is basically the same except actually worse because there isn't even the same level of enthusiasm for Biden as there was for Clinton. And they're betting that they can just do this, that they can run the same failed experiment twice because coronavirus has changed everything. That's that's the bet. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's the exact same thing. I mean, even, you know, it, it was kind of surreal, actually. Uh, just uh, a week ago or so, I... Uh, you know, I open up the news and I see uh, John Negroponte, war criminal John Negroponte. He has endorsed Joe Biden, as well as a host of uh, other Republican uh, national security officials, you know, very right-wing people. Um, and then I, I go, well, this sounds familiar. And sure enough, almost to the day, uh, four years ago, I read about John Negroponte endorsing Hillary Clinton for president. Um, and I'm, I'm almost to the day. And so they are uh, very recklessly running with the exact same campaign last time and hoping that's going to be different because of COVID. And like I said, maybe there's basis for this. Biden is leading. But as I point out to you in, in this interview, uh, there are a lot of warning signs that suggest that, that you know, if Trump does anything differently, um, that this race could, could turn you know, against the Democrats in, in, in his favor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's really, I mean, what it is, in effect, I mean, what you're describing is that Trump, you know, is basically the active player here. If he plays this well, if he shifts a little bit here, if he does something outrageous, um, the people who like him, you know, will will go along or, or possibly eliminate some of them. But, you know, and so the Democratic campaign is essentially a passive campaign. Um, you know, the attractive factor is not on them and their magnetism and what they're offering um, so much. Although, you know, of course, the convention speeches were very enlisting for people, um, which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that they don't necessarily reflect any kind of concrete platform, not so good. But, you know, apart, but you know, we're not going to have the convention every day unless, you know, the same players are going around and stumping uh, for him uh, in his, you know, while he's remaining safely at home or whatever. So, you know, it's passive to begin with in terms of its strategy. It's rendered more passive inert by the fact that he, you know, is uh, limited in his ability to go out and make public appearances. So you have this one kind of attention-getting, outrageous and, you know, terrible guy, and then you have, and he's the active player here, and then you have the passive player, and so, you know, the only thing then, it's also very passive to go out and say, you vote for him or you're to blame. I mean, that's also a passive strategy. Um, it's, it's not really an active strategy. So I do hear, um, you know, the reason for concern. What about the, you know, the ability to vote at all? I mean, you know, what this election could unpleasantly morph into, uh, given the vicissitudes of the post office and, you know, the actual ability to vote. 
Uh, well, I'm of the opinion that the idea that this is going to be a, a mail-in election is, is at this point a fantasy. And I think that the party realizes that. Uh, given what you heard from Michelle Obama, I think they know that ultimately this is going to be about people risking their, their health and, and their lives and possibly their families' lives to stand in line and vote. Um, you know, the, the Postal Service, of course, Trump has, has and, and the GOP are obviously trying to undermine it in advance of the election, of course. That is, that is obvious. Um, but it's, it, this problem would have existed even without Trump and the GOP doing this. Uh, you know, during the Democratic primaries, there was a report just uh, a few days back uh, that during the primaries, uh, something like 550,000 absentee ballots were thrown out because of uh, mistakes. Whether they were late or there was, you know, the signature was, was off or you know, some sort of mistake with the name, what have you. So that's half a million votes tossed out. Um, it, that, it was 200,000 votes more that were thrown out in 2020 than they were in the 2016 primaries. So remember, this is all in the primaries. This is before all this madness, um, which already shows you how unreliable mail-in voting is going to be. Um, the Democrats are, of course, trying to, to file legal challenges now to make it more lax, to, to, you know, which I think is a good thing, you know, to make it a little more forgiving for people who do mail-in ballots. Of course, you know, if they succeed, <laughs> what they would have won is they, they would have won the primary uh, by essentially suppressing votes in the same way that they're now challenging uh, to change. But, you know, that, that's another story. Um, but that really just shows you how um, unreliable this is going to be. And, I mean, uh, it, I, I think it's going to end up being, if, if you want to make sure that, that you actually vote, and if, if the party wants to make sure that people's votes are actually counted, they're going to end up telling them, you have to go into line. Uh, you know, even if you ma uh, mailed a ballot in, there's no guarantee. You don't know, one, if it's going to get there on time, if when it gets there on time, it's going to be accepted. So the only way to really securely vote is to go do it in person, which is obviously that's going to be chaos um, on the day. Uh, but it also is going to put people in the position uh, of having to decide, you know, do I potentially risk getting infected? Do I, you know, go and then quarantine six weeks, maybe miss work, you know, what have you? Um, and, I, you know, I think people are, plenty of people are going to be fired up enough and, and you know, obviously outraged enough for the last four years or in the last four months um, to go and do that. But there may be people who just say, you know what, this is so far from from my life and, and what is actually going on that I don't really see the point of, of me wasting time on this. Um, so, you know, that, that is, uh, that's a real danger uh, for them uh, going into November. Yeah. I think I see that, and, and, you know, one of the things that uh, we discussed a great deal in the primary, but which isn't really on people's minds and which people don't really seem to understand, from what I can tell, is the role of the people who don't vote. In the 2016 election, that was like, you know, 40% of people didn't vote. So it was like more people didn't vote at all than actually voted for either candidate, and that's one of the... Uh, factors in determining that these are two popular candidates, you know, that people just didn't even show up. Um, and, but it wasn't just that they were lazy, that they were stupid, that they don't care, or whatever else. It's that um, they may have jobs, they may have family responsibilities, 
Uh, they may, you know, they may have been <clears throat> poor people or members of disenfranchised communities who don't have the time to, uh, to to go and wait online or be given a run around about the polling location, which happens frequently, or the fact that, you know, like in an affluent district, you'll, you know, there'll be four or five different polling locations making it convenient for everyone there, relatively speaking, whereas in poor communities, you know, they may have to, you know, go somewhere else and, you know, several communities may need to share one polling place with, you know, hours and hours of lines. And so, you know, for people who uh, are on the national stage, who are millionaires, who are affluent, who live in mansions, you know, to be kind of like trying to give a pep talk um, to people who are living under very different circumstances, um, especially with the pandemic, but even in general, and with a heightened risk of going out to vote and waiting longer online to be exposed to even more people during a pandemic is, you know, and for candidates maybe, you know, where they're having trouble discerning what's in it for them, um, you know, this is almost like a huge setup for a major uh, further dip in voter turnout. In other words, a lot of, you know, and it's not that they're bad people or stupid people. We haven't created the infrastructure whereby either they could more easily vote, as many white people do, for example, and they're not even aware why anyone would have a problem if they talk down to people, or where they could vote safely by mail. I mean, we haven't safeguarded um, either system to make it possible, and therefore it's quite predictable that a lot of people will not see what's in it for them or be too inconvenienced to participate even if they want to, even if they really want to. 100%. Uh, and we saw that in the primaries. I mean, you know, again, similar to the, the problem with the mail-in ballots, um, this is very much something that, that may well have, have hurt uh, Sanders' candidacy, uh, much the, the delight of the party establishment, that is now coming back to haunt them. Because what do we see in the primaries? We saw in heavily uh, black and Latino areas, uh, polling places being shut down or having been shut down, you know, over the, the past um, six or so years, uh, and people waiting for hours, seven hours, five hours, nine hours to vote. Uh, you know, we, we still really have no idea, and perhaps someone will someday do a, an analysis, but we don't know how that affected Sanders' candidacy, particularly because he was, he, he you know, in, in state after state, he tended to win people who were, on the poorer side, Biden tends to win more affluent voters. Those affluent voters are going to be in, in parts of uh, the country and, and areas of states uh, that Republicans, you know, uh, <laughs> would have aimed to not close down polling places in, um, because there's, there's uh, more likely to, to be Republican voters there. Um, so, you know, we'll never know how that affected Sanders' candidacy, but we know now that that is going to be, we're going to have the same exact problem uh, come November because none of that's been fixed. And I think that's the other thing that, that needs to be said about this is that there's a lot of uh, blame being put on Trump right now, and quite deservedly, for what he's trying to do. Uh, but, you know, the, the fact is that this isn't just because of Trump. The, the Postal Service has been systematically undermined by the Democrats for, for years. 
Um, and and you know, this is a classic story of the party, which is just uh, not thinking far ahead, you know, uh, leading with neoliberal ideology and not thinking about the kind of repercussions they'll have. You know, this really dates back to 2006 when they passed the, uh, the, the, the bill that necessitated the Postal Service be able to pay out uh, people's retirement benefits decades in advance, uh, a requirement that no, no private or public entity has to do, uh, and that forced cutbacks and, and, and everything, uh, you know, led to a decline in, in postal services. And uh, then that's coming back to haunt them now, you know, and they could have done something about this. I mean, there were calls back in uh, March and April and beyond, uh, you know, from journalists and others to to negotiate extra funding for the Postal Service, mail-in ballots, all of that, into these coronavirus relief bills, and the Democrats didn't do it. They're now having to do it belatedly because they realized, oh, God, uh, this this might actually uh, sink us, and we didn't do anything about it. But, you know, they were warned they had chances, and they didn't do it. So, yes, uh, is, is Trump and the GOP, are they reactionary, and, and, and do they – Played dirty to win, absolutely. But we know this. We 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 knew this going in. And to me, it's it's similar to people complaining about the electoral college, an incredibly <laughs> regressive uh, and, and nonsensical way to to decide an election. But it is the one that the, the United States has been operating on for its entire history, and you have to play to that. And you, there is no teacher, there is no higher authority you can sort of appeal to and, and, and say, hey, this isn't fair. They're, they're, not, they're not playing fair. That, that does not, that's not how politics works. You know, to kind of, uh, you know, water back this a little bit, um, if you, uh, you know, let's say we roll back the time machine, you know, to March or whatever, which isn't even probably far enough, but, you know, how could the Democrats have played their cards differently in terms of either the post office, the uh, you know the the funding for people, the response to the you know what was within their hands to increase uh, the chances that people would vote, the chances that would people would be in a better situation in their own you know economic situation in their communities or whatever to vote, like or you know in a better life situation to vote. Uh, given this, given this rampaging pandemic, I mean, what could they have? What was within their sights to do differently that they didn't do in a timely well, way? Well, as, as, as I said earlier, the getting uh, funding for the postal service and, and, and mail-in voting into one of those coronavirus relief bills, using the levers that they had, because I mean, you know, a, a, a couple points: the Republicans were really. Uh, over a barrel in terms of they needed a a, a bailout, uh, and particularly they needed it for the the corporate sector, um, the real constituents, and uh, the Democrats could have put something in there, you know, that that early because even then it was it was very obvious, you know, we saw some of the chaos that was happening in Chicago and uh, well, in Illinois more generally, and and, and Florida and, and other places with voting, and so the, the warning signs were clear there. I mean, beyond that, I think that the the way the party's gone about everything, the way it's kind of almost gone out of its way to antagonize these young progressive voters that voted for Sanders overwhelmingly. Um, you know, the, the way that it had this convention where it explicitly told people, hey, we are not going to do this thing that we're saying we're going to do. And, and Biden saying, I'm definitely going to veto a Medicare for all, refusing to, to even consider it. 
uh, and now backing away from even his public option plan, you know, all the stuff, the, the, the denial of um, wanting to, to take uh, more drastic measures on the climate front, um, you know, some of these paltry uh, uh, policy concessions that Biden made, you know, accepting a, a very watered-down version of a debt forgiveness bill that was, of course, means-tested, all this stuff, you know, they could have been a lot more bold with some of the stuff, particularly when it comes to things like writing off debt. You know, I think Biden could have easily uh, adopted that as part of his, his agenda without, you know, even something like uh, alienating people, saying like the Green New Deal, for example. I think that's, you know, wiping out debt with a medical debt, student debt, what have you. That is a broadly uh, populist and popular position, no matter what party you're from. Not going to alienate anyone, aside from maybe, you know, <laughs> uh, well-heeled donors. Uh, but they didn't do that. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think at this point, they, they, they could try. They could try and sort of maybe... Um, Adopt some some uh, more of Sanders' proposals, or you know, uh, maybe even make some promises about the kinds of people that they're going to uh, staff the administration with, instead of sort of having Lau Emanuel and uh, Larry Summers <laughs> hanging around. Um, you know, that that could work. The problem is that at this point, they've they've gone months, you know, doing the exact opposite, and it's you know, even if they did it, I, I feel like people would probably be suspicious or. or you know, not believing. I, I certainly would be. So I don't know even if that would work. Um, they they may well be stuck with the strategy that they've sort of dug themselves into. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. You know, since we just since you just mentioned Ron Emanuel, and this is kind of a, um, you know, well, it's an important question. Even though it gets taken off the table, it still remains an important question. Um, and it's twofold. I mean, we just had, um, you know, directly following the uh, convention, you know, we have a, a right-wing Democrat like Rahm Emanuel, um, you know, out and about speaking for the party, predicting this is now going to be, you know, kind of a Republican, the Democratic Party is going to be a Republican-right party. Um, you know, this may suit the current leadership because, you know, they clearly don't, you know, they're not into any of these more progressive policies. But, you know, in the very week that we have, uh, you know, a world-class climate catastrophe in our country in terms of, you know, the, the wild the fires, the out-of-control fires in, in California, and, you know, in that very week we have Rahm Emanuel basically slamming the Green New Deal. Oh, we have to get rid of that. In the same week, we have Nancy Pelosi, um, you know, throwing her support against her typical, you know, kind of stated position of supporting inc Democratic incumbents. She throws her support against Ed Markey, who's a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal, and for Joseph Kennedy III, who is his challenger uh, and a former fossil fuel uh, type and, and supporter. Um, in, in the upcoming Massachusetts senatorial election. So, you know, it's kind of almost like the very thing that's needed, um, they're speaking out against as we have this world-class climate crisis in California. I mean, I know that there's a lot of ignorance on climate and climate denial, you know, among the Republican wing of the party. But nevertheless, you know, the Green New Deal was enormously... 
um, popular among voters of all parties. Likewise, we have Medicare for All, enormously popular among voters of all parties. Um, and, you know, they, that was voted out of the Democratic platform. So on the one, it's really kind of cognitively dissonant. I, I mean, we understand the reason for it. It's the corporate control of the donors in, from the farm industry and the fossil fuel industry who don't want it. But there's almost like a, um, you know, punitive effect in, 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 you know, having these people condemning these popular policies while at the same time asking for everyone's vote. I mean... No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I'm telling you, my, my response watching that, that four-day convention was that it, it seemed like the whole purpose was to almost rub it into the faces of, of Sanders voters that, um, that, you know, this party is not yours. This is not for you, and we're not going to do what you want. And, you know, that makes sense, I guess, if you don't consider the fact that those voters are not a small number of Democratic voters. They're a key constituency. Again, like I said, there was a five-point drop for Hillary Clinton among younger voters in 2016, and uh, that was almost certainly one of the factors that cost of the election and saying that that was that close, um, you know, in this battleground state. And it, it seems like we may be heading that way again um, in 2020. So, it, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense strategically, but, you know, if you consider that the party is, is less a party that, that is going to win government and to achieve its political goals, they're more to both perpetuate its own power and its own existence and also to then serve as a conduit for the interests of the corporate sector. I think it makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, what, what have we seen from uh, the corporate sector over the last few months? It's It's this scramble to grab as much as possible to, to get as much public money as possible um, and uh, you know to hell with the consequences for anyone else as long as we uh, can gobble up as much wealth as we can we come out on the other side okay who cares about the pandemic who cares how many people die and um, you know if they're willing to do that for coronavirus and, and we know that fossil fuel companies were more than willing to do that when it came to climate change uh, this is you know very much in in that wheelhouse you know, the the corporate sector that funds the Democratic Party is, I think, not particularly concerned if the Democrats win or lose this election. But they are concerned that if they win, they might turn left. Or, you know, they would have been concerned if Sanders had won. That's their overriding priority. And, um, and, the, <laughs> and with all the various factors um, that we've been discussing on today's show, and once again we're talking to Bronco Marchetich, of uh, staff writer for Jacobin Magazine and author of a book on Joe, Joe Biden, as well as recent articles on both Biden and the Republican National Convention uh, on today's show. You know, it's like all of the things we're discussing represent risk factors for losing the election. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, it, <laughs> Again, like I said, it's it's a big neon flashing sign that is that's in danger. Um, and the sad thing is that if they lose, it's it's not they who will have to face the consequences. It's you know Nancy Pelosi right. is in her 80s. She is incredibly wealthy. Uh, same with Joe Biden. Not in his 80s yet, but he will be. So these people um, concerns like climate change, concerns like 
deportation, you know, having uh, uh, public services cut, uh, benefits slash, all that stuff, that does not factor into them. It's not going to affect them. And so they might feel embarrassed if they lose. They, they'll, they'll, again, point a finger at everything, at Trump, at, at Russia, and what have you. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't matter to them. Um, they're still going to be with uh, They're still going to be financially wealthy. And they believe that, you know, if, if the whatever happens with the climate crisis and, and with the pandemic, they're insulated. Um And, you know, may well in 10, 10 years' time, they don't have to worry about it anyway because they've uh, made a peaceful exit of this stuff. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's, – it's deeply cynical and it's very concerning because, you know, there are a lot of people who really want to defeat Trump, actually, and do care about that. Um, you know, and uh, those of us who feel that way, I'm among them, um, you know, we're being kind of gamed a bit <laughs> and uh, placed at risk that we may not achieve it because of the refusal to do the things that would clearly enlist voters and be winning strategies. Um, you know, that's, that entails a risk. And, and, you know, part of what we have with the whole thing where, you know, you go out and berate someone else about how you're afraid they will vote and kind of pre-blame them in, in advance is that, you know, it's not just, you know, wealthy people who we admire as being, you know, the height of our, um, of what our society produces in terms of humanity that, you know, that don't represent. They're not, you know, the majority of people are not similar to them. Um, and so we're not in the same situation as they are. Um, and so, in effect, this, this kind of hero worship, um, you know, people who are playing a bit fast and loose with our future, our children's future, the future of the planet, our health. Um, you know, there's been no health plans brought forward from their side to deal with it, you know, the pandemic. I mean, we see Trump's negligent behavior, but, you know, nobody's presenting any other plan in a year where this is going on. It's rather astounding. And so, and yet so many people have the need to invest their trust in somebody and hope that it will be okay um, and, you know, are kind of afflicted by this hero worship and can't actually take a realistic look at what's going on here. I mean, it's, it's, it's very concerning. What do you... What would you advise people who are kind of stuck in the raw, raw, all will be well if we think positively with this mindset? Well, I think, look, uh, it's not helpful or useful or necessarily even, even accurate to uh, follow in kind of the worst case scenarios that we'd imagine. I mean, you know, I could outline for you here five, six, ten uh, scenarios that could happen some before that would you know would nightmares and and are realistic. Um, that isn't necessarily how history always works. And again, it's not necessarily helpful to dwell on that stuff. It, it, you know, I think I think it does make sense to think positively. But the thing is, just sitting there and thinking positively is not enough. If people are really concerned, if people are worried about the future, about what uh, even a Biden administration might do then they should recommit themselves. They should, they should harden their resolve, especially after, you know, Sanders really did come close to winning. And, and there are these progressive challenges who have won uh, just this year with unseated major incumbents. We may see 
uh, more coming up, uh, these are positive signs. And they didn't happen because people felt positive and thought positive. They, they happened because people got out there and they got involved and they said you know, to the, to the party establishment, no, we're not going to sit here and just listen to you and, and take this. We're going to actually uh, challenge and, and, and work to change this party so that it is actually able to deal with the, the, the crises and the problems they're facing in this country and the world. So that's, I think, what people should do. If they, if they are concerned, they should take that concern, they should channel it in a productive way by getting involved, by, you know, volunteering for a campaign or uh, whether a political campaign or, or you know, an, an, an activist movement, or a movement for a particular goal, what have you, get involved, get out there. Um, otherwise, you know, the turbines of the world will continue to win and win and win and, and, and block any possibility of any sort of necessary change that we need to see uh, in this world. Well, very good. I agree completely with that. Um, and uh, we've been talking, well, we're coming to the end of the show right now. We've been talking with Bronco Marchetich of Jacobin Magazine. You can find his article online and you can subscribe to Jacobin. Um, you can read his book on Biden. Are you going to be doing a sequel to your book, your Biden book? Are you working on any kind of sequel or this was enough? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, on Biden, not so much. Honestly, I I, uh, I have so much uh, spent so much time writing about uh, you know people with, with terrible political careers that it's uh, you know <laughs> I don't know if I want to embark on yet another uh, project when I do that. But uh, one thing that is is sort of in the works uh, yeah, that I'm I'm toying with and and have have gone some way towards is uh, you know writing a a book about uh, Bernie Sanders' political career. So doing a, a Similar thing to what I did with Biden, but in this case, someone with uh, an actually good record and an actually uh, admirable career of accomplishments in, in politics. Um, you know, I haven't started on that, but uh, if people are interested in reading, um, when Sanders was still in the primary, I, I had uh, written a, a uh, about six or seven articles that kind of serialized his first year of Mayor Bellington. I think it's a, it's a fascinating story. Um, of course, it's just the first year, seven more, um, and those, those are yet to be written, of course. But I think it, it may be interesting for people to, to have a look at not just get an idea of where Sanders came from and, and his style of politics and everything, but, um, you know, I think an interesting lesson, an interesting episode of, of the left, and, I, you know, I really mean the radical left, uh, being in power uh, after the neoliberal turn and actually building political power. Um, and I think that's a reversal story. So people, you know, if they, if they want to get a taste of what I may be working on in the years ahead, that, that's uh, one thing to take a look at. Well, that sounds great. I hope that proceeds. That sounds excellent. Thank you so much for being with us today, Franco Marchitich on Connect the Dots. Um, it's been great having you again. Um, and thank you, listeners, uh, for being with us now. Uh, on today's show, we'll be next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. You can find our show at connectedbox.podbean.com on iTunes. And it looks like we're kind of bonking out on the end of the show there. Okay, um, thank you for being with us, and we'll be back next week. I'm Allison Rose There was me, but there was the sky.